Go ahead and have a seat this morning. Kids, kindergarten through fifth grade, you can go ahead and make your way to the back and uh, your teachers will be waiting for you back there to take you upstairs. Take your Bible with me this morning and head to Isaiah chapter 11. We're in Isaiah this morning. A handful of selections from the book of Isaiah is where we'll be. Uh, throughout Advent. Last week we started in chapter 9. This week we'll be in chapter 11. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry has a handful in the back and would love to hand you one. Um, and uh, just put your hand in the air and he'll bring it to you and you'll uh, so that you can see the words that I'm about to read in, in front of you this morning. Thanks, Larry. Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read the first 10 verses here in this, in this chapter. Isaiah 11, 1 through, 1 through 10. We'll let the chaos subside. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. These are the words inspired by the Holy Spirit that Isaiah writes to, to God's people. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young, or the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nation inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We often greet one another with a simple hello. A simple hello is maybe how you greeted many people this morning as they came in uh, to, to worship. The best that I can tell is that the word hello is just for the purposes of greeting someone. The best I can tell is it came about at the time that the telephone was invented. And that, that word doesn't necessarily go much beyond that. But there's a word in Scripture that this passage in particular is describing for us this morning. And it's a word that is oftentimes under-translated in our language as we move it from Hebrew into English. Oftentimes it winds up being under-translated. The word is a word that I'm sure that you're familiar with, have heard once or twice in, in your life. The word is shalom. 
This word is what we often see translated in our Old Testament as peace. And shalom to this day is a standard greeting among the Jewish people. But there's a lot more to it than our word peace, and there's a lot more to it than just a, a greeting. The Bible uses this word in many, many different ways. I'm going to give you just four ways that the Bible uses And this is the first five books, the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible use this word, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy use this word in, in these ways, and there are other ways that, that it's used throughout the Old Testament. But one of the, the first way is just that the idea of restitution. Shalom is restitution, or it's the payment for wrongs resulting in two parties being reconciled together. Or, shalom contains the idea of well-being, an inner sense of satisfaction. Maybe this is one that you're more familiar with. You know what it's like when your insides are telling you that something is wrong. Shalom is the internal resolution to those feelings. Shalom can also mean friendly relations. This is the absence of war or two family groups who have found common ground. Shalom contains the idea of wholeness an idea and a theme that we see throughout all of Scripture. The idea of wholeness or completeness, maturity. The understanding that things aren't complete and as, uh, and, and as of they are, but now have been made right. So the word shalom is loaded then. It's a loaded term that is used in the Old Testament oftentimes. And it goes far beyond how we just think about peace as being a state of being conflict-free, or just an internal feeling, or even just a greeting. Shalom goes much deeper than that. And in our passage this morning, shalom indicates a recovery of God's intent for creation. A recovery of God's intent for creation. This is the idea of peace that we should have as followers of Jesus. A recovery of God's intent for creation. As we sit here this morning, it's December 8th, and so there's a handful of days now before we get to, uh, before we get to Christmas. But you no doubt have a lot of things to do. Your calendar probably looks pretty full over the course of the next few weeks. School programs, Christmas shopping, Christmas decorating, engagements with family, baking. And just as we talked about last week with joy, you might find yourself being robbed of joy or peace because of all of the things that you have to get done over the next 16 days. This text is for you. This text, that's the good news this morning. This text is for you because you may be confusing shalom with something far lesser. You may be confusing peace with something far lesser than than God has intended for us in, in Scripture. Maybe you're confusing peace with quiet. I saw an ad this morning uh, for, uh, that said to me, give the gift of peace. And I was like, wow, great, yeah. It was for noise-canceling headphones. Those people are confusing peace with quiet. Or maybe you just want the holidays to be over and everyone to just leave you alone. You may be confusing 
peace with people just leaving you alone. Or maybe you're excited for the holidays, but concerned about that one family situation that could send everything spiraling into chaos around the dinner table. If you're sacrificing real peace because you're focused on something smaller, and oftentimes those things are just simply temporary comforts. C.S. Lewis would write in The Weight of Glory. This is a, a familiar quote. Maybe you've heard this before. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in Scripture, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The world, like that ad I saw this morning for noise-canceling headphones, is peddling you cheap temporary comforts that will die when the eggnog runs out or when the fire in the fireplace dwindles and when the cold corridors of your house no longer ring with the laughter of children. The temporary comfort that quiet comes after the holiday is just that. It's temporary. And you'll numb yourself. You'll grow bitter. You will long for next Christmas because you were made for shalom. You were made for peace. Some of the problems that the holidays represent still persist and plague you when you lay in bed at night. These mud pies are what you are going after when you need a holiday at the sea to look forward to. You need something better than just a once a year calendar event. So I'm suggesting this morning that we all need to reevaluate every moment that is coming our way in the next three weeks in light of this passage, in light of Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. And I'm suggesting to you then, ultimately, that we need to reevaluate every moment that is coming in our way in the next three weeks in light of Shalom. So this passage, let's get into it. This passage gives us three thoughts, three thoughts about Shalom that we see in this text. And they're broken up for us nicely. The first five verses show us the power to bring about shalom, the power to bring about peace, the power to make things right. Verses 6 through 9 then go into the picture or the portrait of shalom. What does shalom look like? What does peace look like? And then finally, verse 10 shows us the appeal of shalom, the desire and the the, the, the appeal of peace and the appeal of making things right. So let's think about it. Verse, verses 1 through 5, the, the power to bring about shalom. We ask the question, and maybe implicitly, maybe not explicitly we're asking this question, but I think regularly we're thinking to ourselves, who has the power or what has the power to make every wrong right? Who has the power to reconcile or to satisfy, to end internal and external conflict? You may be saying, of 
course I want lasting peace. The problem isn't that we want it. Of course we want it. The problem is if we actually believe that it is a thing. And if it actually is attainable. If it actually is out there. Do we believe that God has left you in a perpetual state of turmoil that will exist as long as you live here on this earth? And Isaiah's words here are designated for our belief. They're designated for our faith. They're designated for our faith to be bolstered into a mighty oak and pointing by pointing us to the power of God to accomplish what He promises. To bring about the thing that He says is for us. The reason why so many of you may question if lasting peace is for you is because we've sought it in so many other places and wound up disappointed. Jeremiah, the prophet who would write the book right after the book of Isaiah, right away in that book says that the sin of God's people is forsaking God as the fountain of living water, as the only source of satisfaction. And by forsaking the fountain of living water, they got off and dug wells for themselves in hopes of doing it their own way. And they find out that these wells are dry and ultimately offer no satisfaction. A dry well cannot quench the thirst that we, that we have. And they kept going back to the dry wells when God stood there offering them the water that could offer them unending satisfaction. So if we read this text this morning and we respond by thinking that lasting peace is not for you, first of all, you're wrong. And second of all, you've ignored God, His promises, and are content with mud pies while God is standing holding an all-expenses-paid trip to a sunny beach. Who has the power to make everything right? Who has the power to reconcile? Who has the power to satisfy? Who has the power to end internal and external conflict? Isaiah answers this for us. The answer is God himself, and he does it through Jesus Christ. Look back to the end of chapter 10. We're just going to go two verses earlier. Isaiah would write, leading into chapter 11, Verses 3 to 3 and 34 of chapter 10. Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. That is a terrifying picture. God lopping boughs in verse 33. A forest coming down with God's mighty axe. The sin of God's people was pride. Trusting themselves and in their systems rather than in God. We do this all the time. We trust our bank accounts. We trust our personal budgets. We trust our assessment or asset accumulation. We trust our assessment of situations before we trust God. We trust in our ingenuity. We trust in our creativity. We trust in our problem solving before we trust in God. We trust in our intellect. We trust in our degrees. We trust in our emotions. We trust in our experience before we trust in God. And what does God do to his people? He brings about an Assyrian evasion, a tool in his hand, to crush the human structures and systems that his people 
pridefully trusted before they trusted him. The forest comes down. And we can learn a lot of this from, from this in our own lives. When we trust in ourselves and not in God, the boughs are lopped and the forest comes down. Not because God is angry, not because some, but because sometimes the forest needs to come down in order for us to see the horizon clearly. God's people needed to clearly see that their man-made peace was insignificant compared to the lasting peace that God was offering. Our mud pies reek of sin and death. We may be content to sit in them, but the holiday of the sea can clearly be perceived when there is nothing obstructing our view. And a holiday at the sea has a fresh and comforting aroma. This happens all the time at the local church too. Who are we trusting as God as our congregation? Are we expecting our building and our policies and our procedures and programs to provide us with the sustainability and the longevity and effectiveness that we hope for as a church here in Jamestown? If, the, if it's a ladder, the axe will come. God will humble us. God is patient. He is kind. He bore with His people in the Old Testament for centuries. But sooner or later, if we choose to trust something other than Him, God will show us the horizon by laying us low. And while this seems painful, the beauty then comes through through the beginning of chapter 11. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The force is cut down. God lays his people low and humbles them. But out of the stumps comes a small shoot. This is a baby in the manger. This is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of God. And this tiny shoot from the stump is the fulfillment of all of the promise of God. He would bring them all about. The shalom we desperately desire, we desperately need, will come up out of devastation. The power to make every wrong right was a baby contained there in a manger, born to a teenage girl and a blue-collar worker in a forgotten place. In the city of David, the son of Jesse, in the animal's feeding trough lay the Lamb of God. The shoot coming up out of the stump of a failed ancient dynasty. And the wonder of all of this is that the person or the king who sits on the throne when Isaiah writes chapter 11 is King Ahaz. He was a direct descendant of David also, and through his line came Jesus. But Ahaz was spiritually inept. Look at verse 2. Jesus is not spiritually inept. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The shoot that would come up out of the stump of Jesse. He would have the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. The forest had yet to come down when when Isaiah writes this, this, these words, the Assyrians had yet to break over the horizon, but the power that they possessed could 
could not begin to compare to the power of the tiny sapling, a baby in a manger, that would come out of a stump a few centuries later, once the forest was, was felled. And look at the way that, that Isaiah describes this one, Jesus, in verses 3 and 4. Five things here that I see. He's delighting in the fear of the Lord. He's spiritually in tune. He's a righteous judge. He's equitable. He's impartial. He's fair. And he exacts justice against the wicked. It is Jesus who perfectly honors and glorifies God. It is Jesus who weighs everything and acts in line with God's character without ever wavering. It is Jesus who lived according to God's law perfectly and could judge perfectly according to that law. It is Jesus that brings about God's promises without losing those who the world sees as small and insignificant. It is Jesus who ends the reign of evil in the world. It is Jesus who brings us back to shalom. Christmas shows us the power of God to bring us back to perfect peace out of what seemed to be a broken family tree, an ancient dynasty, comes the restart that humanity needed. The one who would make all things new. But then we look at verses 6-9, through and we see what that peace actually looks like. We see the picture, the portrait of, of peace, of shalom. It's the image of a predator and prey together without conflict. This isn't a a nature documentary where a bunch of a pride of lions comes up and tears apart a sickly elephant. You can't take your eyes off of it. What could end conflict between wolf and lamb and leopard and goat and bear and cow, calf and lion? We ask ourselves the question, why this imagery in verses 6 through, through 9? To ask ourselves, well, why does a wolf go after a lamb? Why does a wolf go after a lamb? Well, maybe because it's hungry. Or maybe it's hangry. I don't know if you know that term. It means that you're hungry, and you're so hungry that it makes you a bit angry. So you act a bit irrationally and snap at your spouse, or just generally difficult until you eat something. And then you go and make your apologies, right? Wolves get hungry, and they look for lambs to eat. And it's a hunger that drives them to to kill. The reason this portrait is here is because of satisfaction. A wolf needs to eat a lamb in order for its stomach to be satisfied. Isaiah sees that shalom brings about such a satisfaction in us and such a satisfaction in creation that this picture no longer is needed. That wolves eating lambs are no longer needed. Shalom brings about such a satisfaction in us that there is no need to be driven to seek satisfaction in any place other than God Himself. Another reason a wolf may go after a lamb is because it's an easy target. Because it's an easy target. The small and the sickly get picked off first. If I learned anything from Lion King, that was it. The small and the sickly get 
picked off first. In the world, it's the small kids, the elderly, the sick and dying who get chewed up by the system first. It's more than 600,000 abortions in the United States last year. It's parents who are discarded when they age. It's men and women abandoning spouses when their health declines or when their illness becomes terminal. But Shalom puts an end to the exploitation of an easy target. Jesus decides with equity for the meek. Jesus decides with impartiality. Whatever ails you, Jesus decides impartially for you. He will never reject you for the life insurance policy because your blood pressure is too high. But Shalom takes the target off your back because Jesus put it on His. This Shalom looks like satisfaction in the end of exploitation, in the end of conflict, but this Shalom also looks like the removal of all that we fear. We're a fearful people. It looks like a baby playing. Look at verse 8. It looks like a baby playing next to poisonous snakes. It puts an end to helicopter parenting. We're fearful people. We fear the economy taking a bad turn. We fear bad influences on our children. We fear social settings. We fear tough questions and looking stupid. We fear losing our job, growing old. We fear dying. And Jesus ends all of that, including the last one. He ends all of that. Maybe you fear the loss of control in your life. You say God is in control, but in your heart you'd rather be. Maybe you fear that your reputation might be tarnished. You say that you want to make a name, the name of Jesus famous, but in your heart you'd rather that your name be known. There are lots of things that we fear, but Jesus ends all of them. Jesus brings them all to an end. So how will this portrait of shalom happen? How do we get there? Verses 6-9, through nine, how do we end up here? Of course we want this to be reality. Of course we want to be done with conflict and injustice and exploitation and fear and oppression and sickness and sadness and frustration and bitterness and anger. Isaiah says that there is one thing that will bring about the shalom that we so desperately long for. And he says it in verse 9. The knowledge of the Lord and an earth that is full of it. As full of it as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord spreading over the earth. A small sapling is pretty localized. In verse 1, when that tiny shoot comes up out of the stump of Jesse, it's pretty localized. A baby is one place, but from that sapling, from the tiny baby, will bring about a thick covering of the knowledge of God. Many things promise shalom, but only this one thing will result in the shalom that God promises to us. From this tiny sapling grows a mighty tree through which we all are grafted in. 
It's through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. A tiny tree in the midst of a leveled forest. A tiny baby in the midst of an ancient line of patriarchs and kings whose significance had been reduced to commoners in a forgotten corner of the world. From this simplicity, from this simplicity comes the one through all will hear about and know God. And when the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord, then there will be shalom. Then there will be lasting, lasting peace. But finally, consider verse 10 with me. This is the appeal of shalom. This verse diagnoses our desires. The ancient Greeks had a term, um, homo sapien, for people, and that just means thinking man. Thinking man. But as we consider how the Bible views man, we think not about our thought, but we think about our worship. What is it that we are inclined ultimately to worship? We are more than just thinking beings. We are worshiping, worshiping beings. And this verse diagnoses our desires. We desire peace. We desire shalom. We desire things to be right. We want to be whole. We want to be, have our souls find rest. We want conflict to be in our rearview mirrors. We want pain to be a distant memory. We want fear to dissolve in unshakable security. We want the exploitation and injustice to end. We want our hearts to be satisfied. We want shalom. And when we want something or long for something, we go after it. If we don't go after it, then it must not be worth it. We are worshiping beings. We long to go after the thing that has the, the most worth. And Isaiah says that this is what everyone wants. This is what everyone wants. And Jesus is, stands there as the answer, as a signal for the peoples. The wise man came from great distances. When they traveled to meet the young Jesus, it shows us just a glimpse of how the nations will inquire. Isaiah says, of him shall the nations inquire Jesus attracts people from every corner of the world. They're looking for things to be made right. And they've tried everything. But Jesus ends the search. In Him we find the peace that so we so desperately need. And as Christians, we we're called to make disciples. But we don't really need to appeal to much more than basic human desires. You long for this. You want this. Who can fulfill all of your desires and what can bring an end to that which plagues you? Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace. The yes to all of the promises of God. The yes to the promise of Shalom. So in conclusion this morning, two questions that we can ask are Selves as a result of this text. I'm just going to lump them together. 
What things that have no power to bring you peace have you pursued peace through? What things that have no power to bring you peace have you pursued peace through? And what faulty picture of peace have you bought into? Or maybe how C.S. Lewis would state it, what, what are your mud pies? What are the things that you're okay with just sitting in when there's something far greater offered to you? What's the thing that you think will make your life right? Promotions or retirement or kids graduating or kids moving out? Or a report from the doctor that says you're cancer-free? Or a report from the doctor that a loved one is cancer-free? Or your grandkids coming for a visit or the empty house after a chaotic holiday? Don't get me wrong, I think Lewis, C.S. Lewis would agree, mud pies are fun when you're a child. But in a game of would you rather, very few people would take playing in the mud over a week at Disney World. And if you could live a painless, conflict-free, restful, satisfied, complete life for all of eternity, would you choose a moment's comfort in, in place of it? Like Esau gave up his birthright to Jacob for one meal, we willingly exchange Disney World vacations for sitting in the mud. Don't miss the significance of, of Christmas. A tiny sapling, what Isaiah says, a tiny sapling in a felled forest and failed human systems that would offer newness and make everything right. Christmas isn't just about a baby. It's about what God was about to do. And we see clearly God's plan and how He was going to make everything right. How He was going to bring about shalom. So it's my hope this Christmas season that we, Buffalo City Church, would not stop short. That we would not stop short of marveling at God's wondrous work in raising a shoot out of the stump of Jesse to live and to die like a man while being fully God. This Jesus stands before you as a signal this morning. As a signal this morning. And if you're here and you're hoping in anything this holiday season that is not Jesus, for your peace to make things right, to just get a little bit of quiet, if you're hoping in anything but Jesus for shalom, Look to the One who stands before you this morning, Jesus Christ. Run to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. He will make you new. It's like John said, John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, He is making all things new. Let's pray.